Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the last How To Academy podcast of 2023. I'm Vas Christodoulou. It's a cliché of introductions to say that your next guest doesn't really need one. And sometimes it really is true. In this case, it's true twice over. We brought together the Cambridge Classics prof, Mary Beard, and the comedian and actor, David Mitchell, to talk about rulers. Mary's new book, Emperor of Rome, asks what it was really like to be a Caesar. And David Mitchell's Unruly is a history of English monarchy through the Middle Ages. Here they are together on stage with Hannah McInnes. You're in for a treat. Uh, David, I'm going to start off by asking you, because I think this uh, his history double act that we have assembled was your idea. Mm, yes, um, yes. I'm trying to get a bit of credibility for my tawdry comedian's attempt at a history book, and it's worked. Yeah. Well, that was what I was going to ask. Isn't it just because you, as it turns out, like many other men, just think a great deal about the Roman Empire? <laughs> yes, yeah. We, uh, you know. And in skirts all the time, <laughs> you know, yomping over, conquering, building roads. That's your image, isn't yeah, it? The, absolutely. That's what men want to think about all the time, a straight road okay. of conquest. Yes. Pe- Hello? Penetrating the enemy. So the enemy, both as as foe and lover. And you know what? You do know what the Latin word for sword also means in Latin slang? Gladius. I don't need to tell you. Was it, as in a swordsman was an expression in English as well. Sword, penis, it's the same thing. They got it, they borrowed it from Latin. Right. The Romans thought of everything, Everything, including innuendo. Everything first. (laughs) They've got I mean, Mary, you are obviously a very worthy exception to this rule. Why do you think that um, men think such a great deal about the Roman Empire? Oh, I'm going to be terribly serious, I'm afraid. And I'm going to say, you know, I think it's because it's a sort of safe space to be macho in. You know, you can imagine yourself in those military skirts. You can imagine yourself building roads. And somehow it's all right, because it's 2,000 years ago. You know, you couldn't, you know, nobody, nobody... I'm, you know, I'm stretching things now, but nobody would say when asked, oh, how often do you think about the Third Reich? Well... (laughs) Seven times a day. I mean, you'd be in jail, right? Yeah. Okay? But Rome is so far away, you can, yeah. you can have that genocidal... Um, you can, you can, you can, 
it's... You, can, you can channel your genocidal tendencies into something which is utterly <laughs> safe. And it's... my job, I think, is to say, that's fine, guys. That is fine. Um, now let's make it a bit more interesting. You know, because let's, let's, let's add back in, you know, the women and the slaves and the people who weren't big white men in togas or military skirts. <laughs> so, so the Roman Empire is the acceptable face of fascism. Uh, that's, a... that's what the fascists thought, <laughs> you know, I have to say. And I think, um, yes. Yeah. You know? I, and we've just got to, I mean, I think it's, it's, in some ways it's great for someone like me because you've got something to fight against. You, know, you can deal with that. You can say yes, but think about this. And, you know, off we go. Mm. So, I mean... We're going to talk a lot about the themes that link the rulers in your books, and there are lots of similarities. But there's also a sort of historical overlap that you both, both reference. I mean, Mary, you talk about when Britain's invaded, and you describe it as the final frontier at the edge of the world, populated by strange people who dyed their skin blue, consumed milk and meat rather than bread, and dressed in animal hides. Yes, that's Britain for you, <laughs> as the Romans saw it. And it's... You know, Britain, I mean, it's a good, it's, it's always a good thing to put in front of British jingoists, you know, because Britain was the Romans' final frontier. It was their biggest error. It was a vanity project uh, for the Emperor Claudius, who was desperate for a military victory. He actually got one, but it took the next 300 years, you know, just to keep holding on to it. There were people in Rome who said, quite rightly, don't conquer Britain. You know, it will be a drain on your resources. And they were absolutely right. But they did. And it's kind of given us a strange image of ourselves, I think. You know, are we British or are we Roman? I don't know. It's, has it allowed the British to feel like they were at the centre of things because they were yeah. part of the Roman Empire, yes. albeit a regrettable part yes. that the Romans... Yes, yes, yeah. Basically... Rome, they, they did regret it. I yeah. mean, it was, you know, it was damn stupid. It was like <laughs> conquering Afghanistan, really, mm. conquering Britain. Uh, as silly as that. But when the Romans left, the legions left, the, the, the British were distraught, it seems. <laughs> Who says? Well, I do. I've said it now. <laughs> What I'm asserting now yeah. is that when the Romans well, left, every single person in Britain went, oh, no, who's going to organise everything now? Assert away. Yeah. I mean, that I is in his They but were missed, I, the but, Romans. But that just shows how far you, mm. I'm surprised, yeah. how far you've assimilated that Roman view that what you need is a bit of organisation. Yeah. Right? Well, I do feel that. You know, I mean, in, well, we, in so you many might, ways. You might feel yeah. that now, yeah. but I think you might not have felt it in the fourth century CE. You might have thought, thank God they've gone. Right? Well, do you think that's what the Romano British felt as they buried their coins in hordes and let their villas go to crap? I, I think that they, most of the people in Roman Britain probably wouldn't much have noticed that the Romans had been here, right? Right. So, you know, they were living out on their little farms. They might have been using a few coins and a few... But basically, they were going on as they had before. You know, they were still in the... They were in the Iron Age. Mm -hmm. And if you say, well, basically, this, this does relate to your book, really. If you say, well, where does the Iron Age stop then? Mm -hmm. 
well, some people think it stops about 1450, right, right. in Britain. Yeah. You know, all your kings make no bloody difference. Right. You know, to most yeah. of the peasants living like they've always done in little huts, either, you know, probably nasty pieces of work, you know, with the idea that they were all kind of asterix kind of sweeties who, <laughs> who had magic yeah. potion and kind of made tea or whatever. That's completely wrong. They were nasty shits. But, but, uh, but they probably didn't notice the Romans. And they probably didn't notice Offa either. Yeah. So, so when do you think people started noticing the government? <laughs> About 1970. It was, Actually, yeah, that, it was, that, that, it was a that bad was time. Did, wasn't that it? was when I did. Yeah. You know, sorry, that's extremely self-obsessed. <laughs> I started noticing the government about nineteen. But that is what I wonder. Writing about the Middle Ages, wonder, and also throughout the, yeah. was life just carrying on in a miserable subsistence way? Mm -hmm. But we might as well focus on the people in the togas and the crowns that's because right. we know yeah. their names. Yeah, you know, you've got Roman Empire population of fifty million, you know, of which. At best, we know the names, even going down to the humblest tombstone of a couple of thousand. Most people, I mean, they certainly didn't know who the emperor was. There's a wonderful um, papyrus from Roman Egypt written in a very, very educated, i.e. neat hand. And it's obviously some guy who's been sitting there in the third century trying to write down a list of Roman emperors. You know, and he's, some of them he's got right, most of them he's got wrong, right? And he's trying to work out, and he misses out Caligula. You know, is that because he thought Caligula was a shit, or because he'd forgotten about it? And length of reign, he's hopeless. And we kind of imagine that somehow this mattered to most people. Mm -hmm. Well, it doesn't really. And you know, I, when I'm giving talks about Roman emperors, and it kind of overlaps with your book. Uh, and I was interested to see that he's, he's almost, so he's one of the few semi-heroes in uh, Unruly. Um, you know, I said, look, the Romans didn't know what emperor was what mm. any more than I know what century Edward III lived in, right? <laughs> well, you told me that he's quite important, and I've discovered this, so thank you very much. You might think that Unruly is very funny, etc., but it gave me a few lessons about Edward III. You, you learn a great deal you in do. Unruly. You learn, not you, just what David thinks of each of, each of the kings in very <laughs> I don't want to go into the rest of it, because <laughs> some of it is so embarrassing. <laughs> David, do you think that's very different in terms of people's perception of their kings and queens in the time that you write about? People knew who they were. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, the, the kings and the queens are the you know they're the most important people, certainly in their own minds. But whether or not the majority of the population was aware of which Edward was on the th throne is, you know, I, I don't know. I haven't interviewed them. <laughs> Oh, oh, Mary. Oh, I was, just, I was just trying oh, to show you some emperors because you can see that they all look the same. <laughs> okay. um, there's, there's, you know, some of mine. I mean, I think David's might look. A, you know, your kings might look a bit different from my emperors. But look at that bottom row; they're all the same. Yeah. What I will say, though, <laughs> unlike the representations of many of the kings in my book, they do at least look like human beings. 
because something <laughs> happened to art at some point after no, the Roman Empire. I, I'm afraid I'm going to say you're wrong there. Really? Have you seen the drawing of Ethelred the Unready? <laughs> I mean, I, okay, I know he wasn't a good king. No, I am he, sorry that we don't have a picture we know of Ethelred. We should have Ethelred, but yeah, yeah. all I'm going to say to you, because I'm, I'm, I'm now going to turn into you know nasty little supervisor, you know, Cambridge style, <laughs> and I'm going to say, the trouble is, you have learned yeah. to think that images like that are human beings. You see? That, that has provided you the image of what the human ruler is. Does this count towards my final grade? It might. <laughs> uh, because if not, if I'd I'm say... If I'm marking it, if I'm marking it, it does. I, yeah? I, would, I would say that those look like people <laughs> and, and the drawings of in, the, in the Middle Ages of people like Ethelred look like they're Blue Peter competition it, winners. No. In the, um, in the yeah. under six category. Yeah. That just shows how brainwashed you've been, yeah. you know? Well, I, no, I tell you what. These, are, people, these if, are white marble statues. Yeah, but, white but that's the actual shape of someone's nose. They couldn't do noses. You, For like a thousand years, they couldn't get their noses right. Oh. Okay, I, I, I'm going to send this. This needs to, to go on an art history course. <laughs> does, your next book is going to be art history. Well, all yes, right? okay. yeah. But th this is a sort of broader point about the blurring of fact and fiction in your yeah. books, which is very important. I mean, these are how they wanted to, to be portrayed. And you both talk a lot about this very murky place between fact and fiction that was something that rulers wanted to happen so that they could portray themselves in a mighty way. They wanted, you know, in, in a way, they needed these images. I'm not sure about Ethelred. He <laughs> might be an exception. You know? But they needed these images in order to believe in themselves as being powerful. Mm. You know, we, we think this is all propaganda, and in part it is. You know, you go down your street, you know, not so much in the 11th century, but in the second century. Go down century. your rut. Your rut, yeah. right? You know? But you go down your street, because yeah. Romans had streets, yeah. right? Um, and you see these guys, and you think, you know, and partly they're looking down on you, and you, as pleb, sort of, you know, you get the point. What you forget is that these are, just like Offer and Co., these are frail, vulnerable, sometimes not very clever, uncertain human beings. And for reasons we now can't entirely understand, they have ended up as, as rulers of the Roman world. And they're shit scared. I think a lot of these are shit scared. And they, they need these images to yeah. say, I know that I am emperor, and looking like that means that I am in power. It, that's, that's very interesting, because I think in the Middle Ages, when obviously... In the, the Roman emperors, as you say in your book, a lot of them are declared gods when they die. The relationship of the English kings in the Middle Ages with religion is different, yeah. but they are definitely endorsed by the divine. Yeah. And the yeah. notion of coronation, yeah. of being anointed, mm -hmm. that is of being yeah. born into a hereditary succession, that is saying, according to them and according to the... the the establishment at the time, yeah. that they are supposed yeah. to be king. Yeah. And that and builds their confidence yeah. as much as it's the confidence of the rule. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's, it's the why am I here ruling question. Mm. And how do I know that I'm king or emperor, not just little me who's yeah. not very confident. And there are all kinds of different ways. We have, them, we have them still of learning to believe that you're different when you're yeah. not, when you actually know you're not. Yes. That's, yeah. that's the problem. Of, and it, it's regal power. What's interesting in, in the, uh, in the, the, it seems to me that the medieval kings that totally believed that hype were among the worst. <laughs> the, the ones that yes. believed so unquestioningly, well, I must be king, I'm anointed and everything, so I must have a God given right to rule and therefore a God given aptitude to rule. Those are the ones that went off the rails, that, that undermined the institution <laughs> yeah. of kingship the worst. You know, and eventually Charles I. Yeah. Kind of implodes that. Yeah, exactly. So, and yeah. we kill him. We kill him <laughs> yeah. for, for believing that. And the, the, the way they struggle, they really don't want to kill a king. And they've killed several before Charles I. But yes. Charles I they is They haven't the killed as many as Roman emperors <laughs> no. get killed, I have to say. By Where the do way, you think yeah. the, this, this idea of the divine right, did, do you think it came from this idea from Rome that they were, when they died, they became... Gods, or was it a very separate thing, the Anglo-Saxons, David, who this out need, as you describe it, to outwardly assert a massive holy link between God, Christ, and some beardy guy with a sword? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's seen in the way, the, the tradition of coronation and anointing, that all comes from, from the Roman Empire, doesn't well, it, from the, well, from it the comes, Byzantine Empire. It comes from the eastern part of the Roman yeah. Empire. I mean, we tend to say, oh, the Roman Empire ended in the 5th century. Mm. No, it didn't. It did in the west. In the east, it went on to the middle of the 15th century. Mm. And they invented some of the institutions that, that filter back into your guys, mm. actually. I mean, no, none, of, none of my emperors have a coronation. And they don't really wear a crown, and they don't have a throne. In the east of the empire, though, that kind of tradition does start. And, and you're kind of, you know, your guys who are good at picking up trifles from other monarchies, yeah. they pick that up, and they use it brilliantly, actually. Well, it's, it's interesting that, because you say a lot of Roman emperors uh, are assassinated by their troops by, in the palace or, you know... Um, which really is rare in the, in, among the medieval kings. That, that is what is... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, well, that, it's, but so why, yeah, why, is, why is that? Why are they able to... If it's so easy to kill them, how come the, the power of the emperor is so lasting? I mean, it, it is very strange because what, you know, what your book shows, I think, is that there are... And this would go for many early monarchies. You know, they've got the same problem. Who's going to come next? How do you know who's going to come next? How do you prevent the family killing each other in order to put Joey on the throne rather than Simon? Right? Yeah. How do you do that? And they, they face the same problem, 
but your lot do appear to be less efficient mm. at removing the opposition. Very inefficient. They are yeah. My lot are quite yeah. efficient, yeah. actually. And, and also more efficient at deciding, a, you know, certainly for periods, at deciding a successor that there might be some actual support for and might have a level of competence that would allow them to govern through the being adopted. And if you can adopt yeah. your successor, That's, then you have a wider range of people yeah. to choose from. Yeah. Uh, the, the Romans in the second century, it's when Gibbon said his most famous, but in some ways most stupid remark, you know, that in the, 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 the ruler, Roman rulers of the second century um, made it the world that was the best place ever to have existed on the whole of the planet, ever. You know, no, that cannot possibly have been true. Yeah. Well, he didn't um, know about Netflix. So. Uh, he, he, well, <laughs> he didn't know about China, right? You know, <laughs> yes. you know Netflix, I forgive him not knowing about Netflix. <laughs> But what happens in Rome is that, that moment of succession, which you bring out in your book as being always necessarily fraught, mm. the, the Romans, even with adoption, never quite manage to solve it. They never get a seamless transition mm. between one of these blokes and the next. And, you know, and in some ways that's good because as you... As you say, you know, there's something awful about primogeniture. You know, the idea that, that the eldest son or the eldest child becomes the next ruling monarch because you have to put up with however hopeless they might be. Yeah. They might be completely unsuitable. But if you don't have primogeniture, you have yeah. a fight. Yeah. And your guys do seem to manage the fight a bit better. It's, it's certainty versus competence. Yes. Which do you want yes. most? Do you want That's the right. best person to rule or a better person to rule? Or you just want to know, and maybe it'll be an idiot, but at least but we're fine. all agreed. I don't mind, you know, yeah. we don't mind an idiot as yeah. long as we don't have a period when we're all sticking knives in each other's back. Yes. Better the idiot than backstab. <laughs> yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Have you both decided that? Because, you know, um, you both sort of seem, seem unsure. David, you say, you know, it doesn't seem very fair that someone could be a king just because of who his dad was. And mm. yet, if that system is in place, it's a lot, lot less, to use your word, wobbly. Yeah. And, and Mary, as you say, you know, they had no fixed rule and that created a cult of suspicion and a lot of death. Mm. I don't think either of us actually like monarchy much, though, do we? <laughs> no. So, no. so, <laughs> so, to ask us what's the better way of making yeah. monarchy kind of succeed is, is a slightly odd question. Well, the thing oh, is... David likes monarchy, don't you? He says he doesn't. <laughs> no. no, I don't. In the well, book, he says explicitly yeah. he doesn't. I don't, like, uh, I don't like the autocratic monarchy of the Middle Ages. I don't think that countries should be ruled by someone who is born to power. I think it's absurd. And the people who end up ruling uh, then is, is daft. I don't mind uh, constitutional monarchy um, because I don't back this country currently to reform its own constitution in a way that wouldn't make things worse. And I think it's, a, I think it's an, an acceptable fudge and we have some harmless people in gilded cages and that's fine by me but I don't think they should have real power no. that's that is I think probably that's probably true I think that you know you do feel torn between feeling deeply sorry for them and thinking look 
you know, you've got everything shut up, basically. <laughs> I, I just don't, I, I don't know. I, certainly, I, don't, I, I, think, I think what you're saying is what I think, that you know, of all my political priorities, abolishing the monarchy in this country is not top of the list. Yeah, no, uh, yes, uh, quite. Um, but I, I, have, I, have, I have sympathy for, and one of the things that's nice about looking at periods like the Roman Empire or the Middle Ages is you do realise that we, things are in many ways better now, and we have, we have the possibility to, uh, you know, to have a disputed succession in government without a civil war, and that's, that's oh. great, but it's really difficult to put that in place. Well, you could also resign. I mean, one of the problems about the Roman Empire and your kings yeah. is you couldn't resign. Now, at least Liz Truss resigned. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, and so that's something we can be thankful for. Y yeah. Well, Henry, I mean, there is no doubt, for example, that Henry VI, one of our most useless kings, but, a, but a not an unpleasant man as far as we can tell, would have loved to resign <laughs> on, a, on hundreds of occasions. But he was the king and there was nothing he could do about it. Yeah, but no, the Romans did, in the end, invent abdication. It took them three centuries. <laughs> but by the end of the third century, they'd invented abdication, which changed yeah. things a bit. Yeah. Yes, but I suppose much. kings had a little bit more of a get-out in well, terms that they could, they could leave. Well, in what sense could they I mean, they, they leave? could abdicate, they could... Well, they, none of <laughs> they them never abdicated, did. no. They, they, were, they weren't able to abdicate, they would be killed, because it wasn't safe to have a rightful no. king alive no. when someone else was trying to rule. And so all the times when they made Edward II abdicate and, and Edward III became king, but he didn't last long. He was, uh, he was not killed with a red-hot poker up his backside, but he was murdered because it, just having someone that is a more rightful king alive at the same time is just not well, safe. Well, it's like the two popes, isn't it, a bit? Oh, yes, yeah. very cool. you know, it's but a... Actually, your emperors also die in all sorts of weird ways, like pokers up backsides and sort of similar things. Another oh, similarity yeah. between... They're them. assassinated in, in compromising positions. Mm. But I mean, Caracalla was assassinated while he was having a pee on campaign. He'd gone behind a bush to have a slash and, yeah. and was killed. <laughs> but is that... You think it's, but, you know, but, now it seems quite funny. <laughs> I'm sure but, it wasn't at the but time. But the thing about that is, one of the things I've loved in your book is how you make it clear that the reputations of the emperors for being good or bad are not things we can be certain about at all, mm. but are largely determined by whether or not yes. the next emperor <coughs> gained by ex yes. exalting exactly. his predecessor or by yeah. denigrating him. Yeah. So, it's exactly Richard III and Henry VII, yeah. isn't it? So, we, so the, the guy that got killed while having a pee, that obviously he seems like a loser, doesn't he? <laughs> yes. Going for a pee, he can't even have a wee without getting killed. killed. He, can't, <laughs> he can't rule the Roman Empire. And so it may be that that's not true. That it actually, could, it you know, could be that it's not true. Because his yeah. successor, who said, I'd yeah. be much better being emperor, I can have a pee whenever I like and nobody ever <laughs> kills me. No, I wish I'd... I, I should have said that in the book. <laughs> I think it's spot on. But, but I, there is a basic rule, and I think it, it applies to English kings too, which is that if you are assassinated, you will have a very, very bad reputation. Now, that could logically be because you were assassinated, because you were a bad guy. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, 
That's not impossible. I mean, I'm not sure whether Caligula was nice, but I don't think so, probably. But it's equally true that if you're assassinated, the investment of the next ruler to just dump on you mm. is so big, you know, that actually you've become a villain because you were assassinated. Yeah. And you can never, ever escape from because, that. Because they need the legitimacy Mas to have replaced exactly. the assassinated. And they also need to say, assassinating emperors isn't something you just do at no. the drop of a hat. It's only because they're bad. Yeah, you, they only have to be they're very, they have very to be, bad. Really, right. yeah, they have to be this dreadful. Yes. So you might think, I'm not perfect, but you don't want to assassinate me. me. It's not, it doesn't warrant That's it. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And you also, you know, the assassins have to look... You know, the, the next regime has to look kind of absolutely look no hands. So yeah. we've got that story after the assassination of Caligula, of Claudius, you know, dear old Claudius, you know, made lovely by Robert Graves yes. and um, Derek Jacobi, probably more by Jacobi actually than Graves, I think. But, you know, then he was, oh, after the assassination of Caligula, he was just found behind a curtain right? You know, minding his own business, a bit terrified, and the Praetorian Guard just said, oh, I think we've got our new emperor here. You know, well, we believe that story. Yes. It's absolutely barking. I'm afraid. <laughs> you know, but you yes, know. it doesn't make any sense. You know, no. it, the only sense you can make of it is that Claudius plotted the assassination of Caligula and then said, not me, Gov. I was just fine behind a curtain, yeah. right? Yeah. Hiding, because I was so scared. <laughs> These labels of good and bad and the sort of reputations that have been handed down to us are things that both of you seem to be wanting to reevaluate. I mean, Mary, you say um, emperors did not fall into such simple categories any more than modern monarchs, presidents or prime ministers do. No ruler pleases everyone. Good in whose opinion? Uh, we should always ask, and bad by what criteria? But were there any particular emperors that you think have had pretty bad press that shouldn't have? <laughs> well, I think the problem about that is I can tell you the emperors have had bad press, but whether they should or should not have had it, I think is much more problematic. But let me just show you a picture. Come on, I put. Um, you know, if you want to explore oh, um, what a bad emperor looks like. I suggest you forget Nero, you forget Caligula, and you go to the third century Emperor Elagabalus, um, who was a teenager. He was on the throne for four years. He had four wives in that period. Uh, he was a Syrian, and he, he encapsulates for Roman writers absolutely everything that is bad. So if you want to get the template of the bad emperor, um, you go to him. And here you have a 19th century version of, of one of his crimes. Elagabalus invented the whoopee cushion, amongst <laughs> other things. Um, but this is not showing the whoopee cushion. This is showing one of his dinner parties. He's reclining at the back, in which he was so generous to his guests that he showered them with rose petals in such profusion that they smothered and died. <laughs> and Alma Tadema here is capturing that sad yeah. uh, and tragic and slightly pathetic scene. What I think, you know, what David reaches to sometimes and what, what I try to do in, in 
my book, is to say, okay, we don't necessarily believe this. You know, come on, guys, is this true or not? How do we know? But it tells you, that kind of anecdote tells you something important about power. It tells you something important about the monarch. And here, it is telling us, you have to watch kings, because when they're being generous to you, they can kill you. Mm. And, you know, the, there is... The generosity of the monarch can never actually be straightforwardly generous. Mm. You have to be frightened of the king. You have to be frightened when they're nice to you. Yes. And I, I think that Elagabalus and the rose petals, um, you know, one of the great kind of homicides of history in a way. Um, mm. But it captures important points about the fear of the emperor. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shankar, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, it's, it, also, it seems like it's saying, look at what can happen with power and how it can corrupt yeah. someone and turn someone mad. And so we have, to, we have to be fearful of these people that have power. And it's, they definitely, the Tudors want you to think that yeah. about yeah. Richard III. It's yeah. not, it doesn't happen so much in the medieval period because of this notion of primogeniture and anointing. And almost all of the kings are therefore, according to the system that everyone is going along with, they were supposed to be king. And so there's quite a low ceiling on the extent to which you can yeah. say they were dreadful. And you can say it about yeah. Richard III if you're a Tudor, but you can't totally say it about Richard II, however bad he is, because there's no doubt he was supposed to be king. He was the lawful, by primogeniture, by anointing, he was the next Plantagenet. And so the fact that he is then awful at being king and turns into a tyrant, he's really, people don't really know what to do about it. And so they put him in a castle and they think, we can't kill him. So they, just, they don't do anything, and he starves to death, yes. which is, I mean, that is... Better than that. Yeah. Better, better than dying yeah. by rose Pro Yeah, probably. Just, I was really looking forward to this dinner, and now I'm being crushed I by petals. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but, but that, so they can't slag them up. And even King John, who really is a bad king, I mean, most of them are quite bad, really, but in, in general, I would say the reputations for badness are more historically accurate than the reputations for greatness. But King, King John... All of the kings afterwards are descended from him. So you're not allowed to say he shouldn't have been king or Henry III shouldn't have been king and Edward I shouldn't have been king, etc., etc., etc. Well, that's the problem with Julius Caesar and the assassination. He is, Julius Caesar is the origin of Roman autocratic imperial monarchy. Hmm. Uh, he was assassinated, but somehow what you have to do ever after is somehow to incorporate him, just like you know, your guys, mm. into a, a, a story of, of the history of monarchy. Mm. And they, they're very imaginative about doing it, actually. It's, you know, there's a lot of intellectual energy goes into this, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Mm. You, you, you talk about sort of, you know, death by rose petals. You talk about pretty horrible stories. A lot of the stories are, Mary, you describe the Colosseum as ghastly. How are we to judge these rulers by, by our own standards? Because as you say, Mary, none of them are good or nice by our standards. Well, that's the problem of history, isn't it? You know, if you, 
there's, there's two sides in a rather silly binary debate, which is, on the one hand, you have to take history in its own terms, right? And you can't judge them by our standards. Well, you know, sorry, I do want to judge the Colosseum by our standards. I want to say it's brutal and murderous. The other side is, well, I'm allowed to kind of impose my own moral view on the Romans or, you know, whatever one of these medieval monarchs are like and say they're all shit. Well, the study of history is, I hope, is supposed to help you kind of see why you have to play those two things off against one another. Mm. That, you know, you do have to think about what they thought about it, but you can't lose your own moral compass. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of the sort of historical outrage that you see on Twitter, you know, if you say, well, I think Caesar committed genocide in, you know, in Gaul, you know, he did. You know, what are you doing, you so-called Professor Beard, you know, <laughs> saying that, you know, judging Caesar by your own standards? Well, yeah. they are my standards, yeah. and I, I'm happy to judge anybody by my own standards, but I'm also going to be a better historian if I try to think what their standards were. And I think that's the, that's the tightrope you walk. They're both barking mad, <laughs> horrible, and also some they're people we should take seriously. But it, I, I think the starting point has to be that people are basically the same. So if you... No, as, as, as in, and I mean that they do precisely the same things for all of their life. No, well, they but, piss but, and make no, love. Yeah, exactly, you know, they piss, piss they make love. love they eat. So okay. if you have a context in which everyone's behaviour is, by our standards, you know, incomprehensibly dreadful... Yeah. You, what's, that's, that's learning about the context. And you can't then take it... What Caesar did in no. Gaul yeah. is obviously was extreme by the standards of the day, but not as extreme a thing to do then as it would have been now. And by working that out, that's how, you are, how yeah. the understanding of the past starts to emerge. And that's the only way you can take any kind of meaningful lesson from the past is to say if yeah. you have a totally different yeah. context, no, right. then people who would otherwise no, right. be reasonable that's, will that's start right. committing genocide. And, and, uh, and it is what the past is good for, actually, in terms of thinking about yourself. It's not about the lessons, but what the past in that kind of way enables you to do is to think about what it would be like not to think like me. Yes. You know, yeah. Or what we would be like mm. if we didn't think like we do. And it's, it's that thought experiment mm. which I think is so important in thinking about the past, not, not either finger-wagging and saying, yeah. you know, yeah. excuse me, this was built by exploited labour or whatever. Mm. You know, I, I once said I thought we should go round all the objects in the British Museum and put put a kind of a little cross on every object that was made by a slave. And we would find most of the objects had crosses on mm. them. Now, we have, that's important to look at that. It's also important to think about how it might be to have thought about that sort of production differently. Mm. Actually, David, I suppose in, in your book, you do relate quite, you know, specifically to some of them and their ways. 
<laughs> you have great sympathy, empathy, you yeah. call it, with some of them. I mean, particularly 1066. Mm. Very well, invested, well, in fact, well, well, in poor old Harold. Well, what's interesting about, about Harold there is that Harold is the last king of a regime that is absolutely and undoubtedly overthrown. And the, you know, the, and the, the, the current name above the letterhead in, in, of this country is William the Conqueror's successors. That's, yes. what, that's when we fundamentally yeah. changed yeah. management. And every management yeah. since then has cited their, the fact that they are descended yeah. from William the Conqueror. So yeah. that's a real breaking point. And Harold yeah. was related to no one. He wasn't royal at all. He was just... A so, loser. Yeah. Total loser. So considering that, he gets a remarkably good press. Because you'd think no. he, was an, he would be absolutely a, a sitting duck for, oh, yeah, he died no. doing a poo. No, no. No, that's not true. It's the buyer tapestry and it's the arrow in the eye. Yeah. That's what you think. Oh, my God. That's what it's like, arrow in yeah. the eye. You know, and every little boy, I'm not sure about little girls, but every little boy somehow, as you say in the book, kind of... They're on Team Harold. Yeah, it's the it's William the Conqueror's only major failure that he, <laughs> yes, he, he did. didn't make Harold seem Con unsympathetic. Yes, that's right. No, yeah. that's right. That's absolutely right. What about the way in which, for both of you, writing about these rulers made you think about more modern day rulers? Because Mary, I mean, you say at the end of the book, it, it did, it sort of um, thinking hard over the past years about autocracy as fundamentally a fake sham, distorting mirrors, helped you understand um, the Roman political culture, of course, but also opened your eyes to the politics of the modern world. Um, and David, I know you sort of used looking at these rulers to sort of figure out a sense of, you know, identity or to understand who we are. Um, Mary, I mean, how did it help you think of modern-day rulers in, in, in comparison? In all kinds of ways, but I think that one of the, the themes that I saw came out over the course of writing the book was the idea of whether, whether the ruler is anything ever other than an actor. Are they always pretending? And that comes out, I think, very vividly in Roman anecdotes, particularly about the Emperor Nero, you know, who's a terribly keen professional, semi-professional actor. And there's loads and loads of stories about him. He shows up in the theatre and he's so keen that everybody should watch the show that he's presenting till the very end, that he locks the doors, doesn't let them out, so that, you know, women give birth in the theatre. Um, <laughs> some guys, some old guys are canny and they pretend to die so they can get carried out, right? <laughs> There's so and, much death. And it's, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, there's a lot of death in the ancient world. And part of the point of that is that Nero's crazy. You know, Nero, you know, doesn't know when to stop. Uh, Nero's passion for being an actor is, you know, it's taken to ridiculous extremes, and that, that's true. I think it's also a question of saying... What do we imagine it's like if our rulers are just actors? Right? And I thought about that in relation to two recent events, one charming and one less charming, I think. Um, one was the famous Rishi Sunak moment when he, in order to show that we were all in it together with fuel price rises, yeah. when he was pictured 
um, filling up a car he clearly did not drive, <laughs> with a petrol pump he didn't know how to work, and a credit card he didn't quite know how to pay at. You know, I mean, you know, and the press instantly they kept, they they made him the Nero. You know, he is what he's doing is he's just pretending. The nicer side of that, however, was with uh, with the late Queen. Um, and there was an interview recently with the guy who would produce the, um, the Paddington Bear video. And he said that at the end of the video, he said to the Queen, he said, Mum, you really are a very good actor. And she had replied, are you surprised? It's all that I do, right? <laughs> and I thought, actually, the old biddy had got it. Yeah. You know, she'd got the point that actually the boundaries between acting, pretense, performance, and ruling were very, very fuzzy. Mm. I think that's very interesting when you, th you think of it. I mean, just the other day, there was a picture of uh, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt at a <laughs> Nissan factory uh, where they've, there's some deal on electric cars or whatever, but they're there. They're at this Nissan factory. It's not where they work, quite a long way. Um, so they've both gone there. They've got a, jackets yeah, on, quite, on a, Yeah, on a yes. busy day. Yes. I mean, I feel quite busy all the time. Somebody said to me, no, you've got to go head up to the northeast to have a photo taken in a Nissan factory. I go, well, that's fucked my week. <laughs> you know, but apparently, apparently, despite it being the week of the autumn statement, Jeremy Hunt was able to make time. And despite being Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak was able to make time. And there's a picture of them there in front of a Nissan, grinning, and I think Rishi Sunak's vaguely sticking the Nissan label on, is the idea. Uh, and uh, and I, you sort of think, what is the point of that? And, uh, and you're doing that, you're deliberately doing that at the same time as trying to presumably maintain the illusion that you're running the country. And is it, what, a part-time job, 10 till 12 in the morning, run the country, and then it's photos? And so who does run the country, well, you know? Well, that's the, that is the Nero problem. And I yeah. think when we see Rishi, we always ought to say he has got the Nero problem. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> so but about... he can't play a musical instrument. No. So, you know, and what's happen, he going to do and, when London and, burns? And Rome is happily not burning yeah. right now, yeah. you know? In terms of writing about the your kings and queens, yeah. though, how did that make you reflect on it? Do you feel more lucky that we have the rulers that we do compared to the sort of Ethelred the Unready? And well, I, I think I went into it not you know not imagining that a return to medieval kingship would be a good move Thanks. in terms of the constitution. So, but what it it I what I find interesting is that I think in Britain there is a, the, the cultural identity of all the sections of Britain that aren't England are quite strong and well-defined. And the cultural identity of England is quite wishy-washy. And a lot of people, so I know what it means to be in London, to be a Londoner, to be from Cornwall, to be from Yorkshire, to be from Kent, but what does it mean to be English? And I don't think there's much of an answer other than, well, we've got that, that heritage, that past. That's what we are. We, we're the people who came out of that past. And the key part of our past is our kings and queens that wore the crowns that are still on everything. And so I sort of feel the story of our kings is sort of vital to England's sense of identity. It's sort of the first thing we point to. And so looking at that is interesting because it's, the story is daft. It's, it's, it's full of failure and disappointment and, 
it's colourful, but it's absurd. But, it, but the absurdity is also really meaningful. You know, it, it, the absurdity is teaching us what we are. Yes. You know? yeah. And, you know, and we can bat other sides. We can be the peasants in the Peasants' Revolt. I think what's, well, you know, what's great about the book, your book, I mean, is that, you know, you can... There is this spine of kingship, you know, which I kind of deplore, and I think they're probably mostly awful. Um, but it's a spine that makes other things mean things, mm. you know, and it makes... You can see what it is to be opposed to that. I don't think you have to kind of buy into kingship <laughs> yes. to find it useful. You know, yeah. you can actually think these guys are a load of appalling villains, and we hate them, but somehow they're still there for us. Yes. And, you yeah. know, and we, can, we can do with them what we want, honestly. I mean, I think the great thing about history is we own it, they don't. Yes. Yeah? Yeah. And, uh, and I think there is a sort of duty on the historian to have some kind of degree of responsibility in how they tell those people's stories. But in the end, it's with we are the people who we're doing the telling, and we're deciding what it means. And you, you say this in the book, and I think that's absolutely right. This is, history is ours. Mm. It's not theirs. I'm afraid they're dead. You know? <laughs> yeah. They are long dead. The yeah. Romans are dead. All those macho men tramping over genocidally you know, the, yeah. the virgin fields of Western Europe, they're dead. Yeah. Right? Okay, I need yeah. to go to audience it's, questions. It's in, a, in a way, if the, if the history is... These were the great people, and they were the problem. And the story of humanity is how we coped with those problem people. Yes. And, and definitely English history, all of the institutions of the medieval England and the things that are most interesting were coping strategies for dealing and, with kings. And we get back at them, and uh, oh, this is very quick, and I don't worry. Um, one of the, the stories I best remember uh, where the Roman emperor is horribly shown up is when the Emperor Hadrian, it's an appalling bit of violence, he gets crossed with a slave, he takes his stylus out, his pen, and he throws the pen, <laughs> he gouges the slave's eye out. And it's, a, you know, it's one of the worst bits yeah. of uh, slave exploitation. Hadrian then, of course, feels very bad about this. Um, <laughs> think, oh, shit, what have I done, you know? And he, so he brings the slave back in and said, I'll give you anything. You know, just say what you want. I will give you anything. And the slave just replies, I'd like my eye back, please. <laughs> yeah, that's... It is the worst yeah. story in the book of very yeah. bad stories. Yeah. I feel like I cannot go to audience questions without mentioning the women. It's very oh. important <laughs> to me. Um, and on the one hand... You know, you say it's our history, but one of the things sort of glaringly missing is the opinions, the recollections, the memoirs of any women. Mary, you say that, you know, Nero's mother's autobiography, Agrippina, was, is one of the greatest losses to, to all of <laughs> classical literature. It is, yes. But on a positive note, you also do say that this was a time when women became more seen, they had more of a presence and more of an influence than they'd had. Some women did, a few women did, and I think that's true. I think, however, um, Roman history, like quite a lot of medieval history, is a time when women come into prominence in order to be blamed for the men messing up, really. 
And it's easier to blame the woman than to blame the bloke. You know, Carrie Johnson, I, mean, I don't think she's here tonight, <laughs> um, but if she were, she'd know what I meant. I mean, do you think that's the case? I mean, you also say about women, one of the boring things about a lot of history is the towering sexism of the ages and many subsequent ages, which has left the specifics of all the brilliant or shitty things women were doing unrecorded. And you'd basically think, from all the research you did, they were essentially just marrying kings. Well, yes, there's certainly, I think, in the... the, the in the medieval England, there wasn't quite the tradition of, of saying that the, of, of talking about the scheming woman behind the throne. I mean, it happened, but not to, not to the extent. It was a, it's a big deal in Rome. Anything yeah. that went wrong, oh, she probably poisoned him. Yeah, it was yeah. probably, you know. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that, it is more just, okay. just, they just married that, you know, and they don't, uh, the women's act, the reality even of powerful, rich women's lives isn't, just we don't know as much about it. It isn't much discussed. There are a few exceptions, like the civil war between King Stephen and uh, the Empress um, Matilda. Matilda, she's she's a, all right, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, Matilda. Absolutely. She she you know yeah. she doesn't uh, allow herself to be forgotten yeah. by history. No, she uh, take no shit. Yeah, no. she doesn't. She, Very quick. Who Matilda well, is? Matilda was the <laughs> son. Does, of it. it doesn't matter who she is, really. <laughs> The main thing is, she was That's, very horrible to a yeah. man called Stephen. No, <laughs> that, is um, the main, uh, that is the main thing. But, but no, she, she was uh, defrauded of her inheritance and she didn't take it lying down. But nevertheless, uh, it was a very sexist time and, and King Stephen remained just about on the throne until he died, despite her efforts. But her efforts were considerable. Um, and, uh, I mean, the main consequence was it's two posh people having a war. Uh, and, and They're making, all posh people, yeah, they? exactly. They're all posh people. That's Do you think it would have been different if there had been more women ruling over those times? I mean, probably no. 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 I've just, I've, I've consulted uh, Professor Mary Beard. She no. says no. 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 <laughs> um, um, but, okay. but it's such a huge if. I mean, that's not, you don't make that one change. That's a completely <laughs> different attitude to humanity, isn't it? That, that, you end with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely true, yeah. David. Absolutely true. Why did you choose to end where you did with... A very notable woman in Elizabeth I. Well, because I thought the book needed to have to be about something coherent. I thought it needed to be not too long. Uh, and I thought, I, if I go beyond Elizabeth I, it's Where not. Where do I stop? Yeah, and you, there's no reason to stop <laughs> before. Elizabeth II. Exactly. Yes. And then the book is far too, too long. long. And also, then you, it raises the question why did you ignore Scotland up to 1603 and only start yeah, uh, yeah. paying it any attention when the, the kings of England are also kings of Scotland? So, you'd, have, you'd have got trashed in the Scottish Herald if you'd done that. Exactly. And I, I live in fear of the Scottish Herald. Herald. <laughs> <laughs> well, who doesn't? Um, well, I'm very glad that both of you started and yeah. ended where you did. We haven't managed to get through nearly enough of all of it, but as I said, people can buy um, both the books and have them signed afterwards, and all the other questions, the many other questions, will be answered within. But please um, raise your hands very high if you have a question. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, um, thank you very much. Um, I always imagined uh, Charles I saying, A2 um, Cromwell. Um, what was your favourite um, act of either self-harm um, or debauchery <laughs> of kings, queens, emperors, empresses, etc.? God. I, I mean, what, I suppose, I mean, it's an odd thing to have a favourite thing <laughs> of, but 
I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not so sure. Something that no. springs to mind, just uh, was something that Ethelred the Unready did, which is, which is, you know, was not a good thing at all, but it really puts the tin lid on him being, you know, a regrettable figure to have held power <laughs> because he was very, very weak. Uh, very panicking about the Vikings all the time, trying to pay off the Vikings whenever they came, which basically just turned himself into a cash point for the Vikings. Uh, but then he, got, he turned a little bit spiteful one day and ordered that anyone Danish in the whole of England be murdered. So it's like, he, he's mainly, you're thinking, oh, poor guy, he's so weak, he doesn't know what to do. But then just on a bad day, he turned suddenly genocidal. Um, so it said. Yeah, so, so it said. said. We, we, so it we said. don't know if he actually no. did that. No, we don't. Um, I think that, well, most, many people's favourite anecdote, um, but I'm not going to say it out loud, I'm going to suggest you Google it, really, is what Tiberius did in the swimming pool with small boys, <laughs> right? But you put Tiberius swimming pool into Google, it will come up instantly. <laughs> So you're uh, referring your answer to Google or, another, I, or a second? I, I, I think, but I, I think that, um, you know, Elagabalus, who's still on the screen, I think, is, you know, he's the source of most of these. He was said never to have worn the same pair of shoes twice. And that always kind of appealed to me because that's just Imelda Marcos yeah. territory. <laughs> you know, Imelda Marcos was supposed to have after her death, been found with cupboards full of 3,000 pairs of shoes. Now, nobody ever actually counted or discovered these shoes. Um, but it's the same story as Elagabalus. <laughs> you know, it's exactly also, the same story. Shoes. Shoes and monarchs is something <laughs> terribly important, isn't it? Do you kiss the shoes of the monarch? Does the monarch wreck the precious shoes by walking on them? Or does he say, after he's worn them once, never again? I mean, I, I would that's... say it would be positively annoying to have a system where you're not allowed to wear the same pair of shoes twice. <laughs> You'd sort of go, oh, well, now I'm on this system where, where I'm such a big shot, I can't wear the same shoes twice. <laughs> well, that's so right. I liked that's... yesterday's well, shoes, yeah. but now I've got to break in today's no, shoes. <laughs> And it's only, yeah. I haven't got time to break them in yeah. because I've only got a day, yeah. right? I mean, but it's like Kate, isn't it? It's like Princess Catherine, yeah. you know. You know, as soon as she, she goes out in the same outfit twice, she's either applauded for, you know, using it again mm. or ridiculed because, you know... <laughs> Depending which paper. Hasn't she worn that before, you know? And so I it, think that's, that is the imperial it, it, and royal... But it shows a lack of, it's, a, it's the lack of imagination about the truth of the mega power of the Roman emperor, potentially, yeah, no, that it's reducing it, it to the level of shoes. No, but I, you see, I don't think it's lack of imagination. I think it's, that is how you understand the power of these people. You know, you don't understand it in big terms, because we can't, we can't, we can't conceptualise that. So we actually focus on their shoes, yeah. uh, what they eat, all those things that we can understand and we can say, well, what would I do if I was Roman emperor? If I could, if I could sleep with anybody in the whole world, who would it be, right? And that's what these stories are asking themselves. Mm. They're kind of trying to get uh, imperial or monarchical power down to something that we can begin to sort of grasp mm -hmm. in our own terms. So I, I, think shoe, I, mean, I think shoes are in many ways the key 
to imperial power. Actually, food. Food is really interesting. I mean, you say they're more tapas types, the Roman emperors, oh, yes, than yes. meat and two veg. Yes, yes. I don't, don't believe all these stories about vast um, you know, banquets. I mean, there was a bit of display food there, but you know, think of the poor buggers. Um, they're lying down to eat. Yes. Um, that's going to give them awful acid reflux for a start, I think. Uh, so, but they're balanced on one arm. They've only got one hand because they've got the glass in the other, and they haven't got a fork because forks haven't been invented yet. So they, you know, yeah. they can eat finger food. Yeah. They can't eat, you know, a you know whole roast boar unless it's been cut off. Were you it's disappointed a, by this, David? It's a tiny well, no, but I've, I've often thought that reclining because doesn't you the elbow you propped up on it's just going to get tremendously right. achy. And then you and drop, you're gonna have, your, I'm going to you know, swap sides again. Yeah, and your hand you know. goes numb, yeah. and you drop your glass, yeah. and then the other one has to. Well, it, yeah. ca it can't carve half a side of boar. Yes, it looks great for a photo shoot, yeah. but it's not. It, it's no it's way not, to have a big meal. You bring in one of Henry VIII's yeah. feasts there. Yeah. They're no, get, that's really, not, they, now yeah. you're talking. Yeah. You know. But you know, in some Roman dinners, they had they put the couches around a little pool, and <gasps> in order to get the food to the diners, they put it in little boats and they pushed <laughs> it across to the diners, who, with their one free hand. <laughs> We have tried to kind of grow, you know, like some terrible fairground amusement. Yeah, you have to be disappointed as a volleyball plops <laughs> into the water. Can you get your supper? You know. Oh God, the the, the roast dormouse yeah. is yeah. now in the bottom of the pond. These are the brilliant levels of detail that in both books you get oh, yeah. a serious really. insight into living at these times. Richie reality. Yeah. Uh, yes, over over there, and then can can you pick up who can we come to next? So, so I was going to ask. Um, I don't know to what extent you've been able to compare uh, notes about your two processes ahead of uh, writing the two books, but I, I thought about the two different time periods um, and the access to primary sources. Obviously, the Roman period is very, very different to the uh, written period that you experienced, David. So um, to what extent would access to primary source material uh, impact the extent to which you can actually say that the story that you're telling is a true reflection uh, of the story that you're actually writing? Well, I didn't go to any primary source. Before, so, uh, uh, mine's... <laughs> your, David, your mark has just gone down. My, you could have uh, disguised it. Yeah, well, I looked at the picture of Ethelred the Unready <laughs> and, and at the yeah. Alfred Jewel from which I inferred that people back then couldn't draw. You'd seen that before. Um, yes, you'd I had seen, seen, seen that, that before. before. Yeah, well, you'd I was already on top of a lot of the primary sources before, <laughs> as Mary says. Um, but no, my book is an overview, and I read lots of other books about the English kings, but I didn't go and dig under a castle wall to see, oh, hang on, they had mobile phones. <laughs> You read well, Bede. You read Bede's Ecclesiastes. primary source. I did read Bede. So that yes. we didn't have to. Is it a primary source? She's writing about hundreds of years earlier. It's already a secondary source. And it's a shit one at that. Oh, that's... <laughs> that is a really irritating student remark, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, they Bede's a primary source, you well, stupid I... old professor. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Up yours, up is... yours. You know, Bede, he's just awful. He's not very good. I, I, uh, I did read Bede when I was 19, and uh, it was boring. 
Uh, but, Look, but I know bead is important, and, and you know, we owe bead a lot, I, and I've I, come round to bead. I've, I've, I, 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 sorry, yeah. schoolboy. Yeah. I, I, I do think it's important to be able to say that some of these people are boring. Yeah. I do think that is important. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to be the prof now, and I'm going to say, look, what I wanted to do was to say, stuff all this kind of complaint that people like me usually bring out, that there is so little primary source material for the Roman Empire. You know, isn't that awful? We don't have the voice of women, etc. You know, very kind of moany sort of historical stuff. I wanted to say, look, we've got more about the Roman Emperor and the Roman Empire than we could ever read, anybody could ever read in a lifetime. And actually, it is as rich as any period up to the Renaissance. And most of the problem is that mostly, I'm afraid to say, the professional historians tend to keep to themselves the best bits, frankly, and what I wanted to do in the book, in part, was to say, look, let's share some of the best bits. And, you know, one of my favourite little vignettes was you know, a guy in the third century in the province of Roman Egypt who doesn't, you know, who hasn't had his moment in the spotlight. But what we have is basically his emails, or they would now be his emails, that he's sending up and down the food chain because he's trying to organise a royal visit. And just like organising a royal visit now, it's bloody hard work, and most of the people are dead uncooperative. <laughs> so you get these, these, as it were, emails sent off to you know, the people just down the food chain, where he's saying, now you've got to get the bakery ready because there's going to be a lot of hungry soldiers and what are we doing about it? You know, the answer comes back, well, why should we get the bakery ready? You know, isn't that somebody else's job? Meanwhile, he's writing to the person above him saying, I'm trying to get these people to do all, you know, <laughs> to get this. It's not my fault. I'm terribly sorry. And suddenly you're in the world of a middle manager that you can kind of understand and no one's ever said that we have access to them in the yeah. Roman Empire, but we do all over the place. Mm. I mean, you have similarly extraordinary detail about one of the trips abroad of Beckett. <laughs> yes. Where did that come from? Um, I, can't, I can't remember where that came from. Because um, <laughs> he doesn't read primary schools. Uh, no. so, um, tell us a little but, bit while yeah, we get to When, to when Thomas, uh, Thomas yeah. uh, we, everyone calls him Thomas or Beckett yes, for, yes, for no yes. good reason. But except it's sort of got a rhythm. What to is it. he, Thomas, Thomas Beckett. Beckett? Beckett. The uh, Beckett was put in to make him a uh, scan. That's why I said Beckett because I, I was getting confused. Him, I think to maybe make him seem a bit Catholic at a time later oh, when right. uh, when right. being Catholic. I mean, he was Catholic, but it, not at a time when he could have been Protestant. Well, he would have been very fashion forward if he um, <laughs> if he'd gone Protestant. Um, but he yes, he before he was Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, uh, he was. Uh, the Chancellor of England. He was uh, Henry II's first minister, and he had to go to Paris to arrange a, uh, uh, the marriage of a toddler to a toddler. Um, <laughs> and he went in great As state, yes. and he went with, he had like loads of gold plates and a whole coach full of monkeys uh, dressed in suits. And, and it was, and, and uh, basically, he was a bit of a noob. He, was, uh, he wasn't as posh as all the um, aristocrats he was meeting. He was, I mean, he was, you know, he was literate, so he was in the very, very top section of society, but at the bottom part of the, of the section we ever hear about. 
So he'd done well, and he really went for it with his display and with his outfits, and he, was, he, he basically travelled around like a rap star. And, um, and it's funny. Uh, but then he was made Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, which a wrong. job he yes. didn't ask for, oh. and he went really serious. As you do. I want to just add 10 seconds' worth of uh, really important information that you can find in my book, um, which is the first known Western uh, reference to an anal suppository, which was actually shoved up the bum of the Emperor Marcus Aurelius at the end of the second century <laughs> by the aristocratic, no, by the elite um, and celebrity kind of Dr. Michael Mosley sort of character yeah. in the ancient world, the, uh, the Dr. Galen. He cured Marcus Aurelius of his gummed up tummy by a very, very expensive anal suppository. Now, nobody ever tells you that we have that kind of information. No, yeah. the well, Dr. Mosley is a very important source of information. Dr. Mosley is. <laughs> Galen. Pres presumably yes. that's because Marcus Aurelius was a successful, deemed a good emperor, and his heir was, you know, his, he was, his yeah. adopted son ruled that's after right. him. And so people, the stories well, about yeah. things that happened to his bum yeah. weren't... I mean, well, if, he'd, if he'd been assassinated, <laughs> they'd be full of... No, no, do you know what he used to do? Blue, yeah. no, All wait, the time, he'd get doctors to stick things up his bum. bum. Yeah. I have to, I have to I'm say... I'm going to take I one to, last question. I have question. to say <laughs> that Galen is boasting okay. yeah, about... <laughs> Putting his finger See, I, in his I knew the Mary, <laughs> da Mary and David show was going to yeah. be um, a difficult one to, to bring to an end. Just one, one last question. Um, oh, yeah. The, oh. Is, there, is, there mic, oh. is there a microphone? Oh. Do you want to come forward? Ready. Someone's got a mic there. He's got his mic there. We're ready. Okay. Am I okay to go first? Yeah. Yeah. You've got, you got the okay. mic. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. I just want to ask, what inspired you to talk about rulers now during your careers? What inspired you now to write about them? Oh, God. Yeah. It is a bit of a middle-aged thing to do, isn't it, <laughs> I, I think. Well, um, um, I, I suppose I just lived with these guys for such a long time, and I taught them, and I wondered about them, and I thought, right, I'm going to face up to you now. Uh, and, you know, so I was, I, I, you know, in a way, I think, I, David's much younger than me, and... Um, less, less kind of perhaps involved with his kings, but I'm settling scores when I'm talking about these Roman emperors. They've lived with me for the last 50 years, and I'm now having my say about them, I think. Well, for me, it was during COVID, and <laughs> I uh, started to type about the Vikings, because it struck me that the Vikings were like COVID, in that there was something shit that suddenly happened to everyone. Um, that's not from the Vikings' point of view. I'm showing a want of empathy for the Vikings there by aligning them with uh, a virus. But from the point of view of the uh, people in England, the Vikings just turned up, the world turned on its head and went dreadful um, when these Viking ships started arriving. And that's how it felt when COVID struck. And you know, there are a lot of things that we could have prepared better, we could have done that. But basically, it was something dreadful out of the blue, like the Vikings. Most people didn't think COVID was like the Vikings, though. That's, you know, well, they need a, to read my book, and they'll find out why it was. It's a bit of a niche, a bit of a niche comparison. Yeah. Um, 
Um, I'm genuinely sorry that it's uh, people may have trains to catch. Otherwise, I could quite happily sit and talk to you both about emperors and kings and queens and all the awful things they got up to uh, for another hour. But you're both going to be signing your books outside, aren't you, for a while? Yes. Uh, so you can get your copies signed up there. Thank you, David and Mary, very, very much. Uh, thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thanks very much. It's much more fun than some of the things I do. Oh, that was a really nice, funny event. This episode starred Mary Beard and David Mitchell and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by me and Nicole Wong and our editor is John Doughty. You can pick up copies of Emperor of Rome and Unruly from our bookshop.org page. Every sale supports Primrose Hill Books, our independent bookseller partner, since 2013. Mary is actually coming back to How To Academy in February for another talk, this time focusing on the idea of the West and its relationship with Greece and Rome. She'll be in conversation with her fellow classicist, Oxford's Josephine Quinn. Tickets have just gone on sale and are pretty much guaranteed to sell out, so if you're keen, drop everything and head over to our website right now. That's all from us this year. I'm Vas Christodoulou, wishing you all a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Thanks for listening.